inspired by the Canadian Federation of the Blind. Outlook, a show about accessibility, advocacy, and equality. I'm Brian. And I'm Carrie. Outlook. Radio Western. Good morning. Welcome to Outlook for another Monday. Hi, Carrie. I have you patched through again on Facebook Messenger. Yeah, here we go again. <laughs> yeah, so we have an exciting show today. Um, off top, I just want to quick mention that Carrie and I were recently, as of yesterday, featured on a podcast called Blind Like Me with Tim Black. Um, we'll talk a bit more about that uh, later on, but you can find the podcast anywhere you get your podcasts. Just look up Blind Like Me. The episode we're on is called Blind Siblings. And you can also find out find the podcast and find out more about Tim Black on his website at timblackonair.com. So thanks again to Tim for having us on. It was a great conversation we had yesterday, and it's up for anyone to listen to. We'll be sure to share it on our Outlook Facebook page as well. So moving on to today's show, um, we have a special guest and Carrie once again lined this up. So thank you, Carrie. And I'm going to take things over to you, Carrie, and you can introduce her. And Yeah, thanks for listening this morning, everybody. So our guest today, which I'm really excited about, um, she's a writer, an actor, an artist, and an educator. And uh, her name is Leona Godin. And I found her, like I find a lot of writers uh, and interesting people um, through Facebook. And so I've been following her for a while and what she's up to. And that's what I want to talk about today with her. So thanks, Leona, for coming on. You bet. It's great to be here. So where are you coming to us from today as we're all coming in separately here? <laughs> um, I'm coming all the way from Colorado, Castle Rock, Colorado, a little bit south of Denver. Wow. Never been to Colorado. No, me neither. Um, it's sort yeah, of lot new for me, too. I was in New York for for 20 years almost, so I'm still kind of getting used to being in the in the mountain time zone. Wow. So what's the biggest difference you notice other than the big giant <laughs> Every, <in New> York? <laughs> Other than everything? <laughs> yeah, um, exactly. It's a it's a bit of a cultural shock. Or it's a, I it, can I may I be blunt? It's a it's a bit white here actually, and <laughs> a little a, a little um yeah a little monochromatic compared to New York City. That's for sure. But um, we're here because my partner's parents are here and they needed a little bit of help and um. We thought we would be doing lots of traveling this year, haha. <laughs> so mm. uh, things didn't quite work out. And I think you too, Carrie, you had some pretty big travel plans that I did yeah. are not happening. <laughs> so, oh well. So, where were you from uh, or originally? San Francisco. Okay. So. Yeah. Yeah, San Francisco. So, this is actually my. I'm sort of covering all the time zones. So I, I was in San Francisco and then I lived in New Orleans for a little while and then New York for a long, long time and then Colorado for just the last couple of years. So in the city of New York? 
Yeah, in New York City. I went to yeah. I went to NYU, so that's where I got my PhD. So I oh, kind of okay. it took me for forever <laughs> to do that, and then um, and then I stayed uh, past that. And I don't know. There's still some I, like all our friends are there. I mean, there's still some desire to to go back there. But also, I have family in San Francisco, so Colorado is kind of a nice in between, and we we kind of travel back and forth quite a bit. Yeah, I lived right. in I lived in Tor- Toronto for about five years, but New York City seems even even bigger and crazy. I've never actually been to New York, but um, and I've only flown through the airport of Toronto one time. But uh, uh, I would yeah, love to go back to to Canada. Yeah, yeah. Or, <laughs> family history yeah but old old family mm-hmm. history like we we've been around so the the godans were i think part of the original sort of whatever the acadians um that that came over in that mm-hmm. first wave of, of frenchies and uh and uh, anyways that's what my dad says mm-hmm. so he he kind of brags on it a little bit so i think we're like 17th century kind of thing and then and then moved into the united states after I don't know, you guys know your Canadian history. I don't, but at some point, right, <laughs> didn't the French have a hard time and got kind of kicked out and dispersed and stuff, so. Yeah, there's been. <clears throat> yeah, every country has these histories that aren't so good to hear about, but we have to. <laughs> so, so anyways, at some point, a few generations back, my, my family came from, from Canada. So what was your life like growing up then? So you grew up in San Francisco, like your yeah. childhood, was it? Yeah, yeah. In San Francisco, but, um, so it was San Francisco proper, but San Francisco used to be a little bit sleepier when I grew up there. And um, I, I grew up out by the ocean, so like the Richmond yeah. District, which is kind of the far west. Um, the, yeah, like if you go any farther, you'll you'll fall off the continent. Um <laughs> And so it was called, yeah, and it was like, you know, so it was called the Avenue. So lots and lots of just like very modest little apartments and small homes and stuff for avenues and avenues and um, quite, it was fairly quiet. But of course, there was a great public transportation and all of that stuff. So it was still a city. It was definitely not a suburb, but it was fairly quiet. Mm Yeah. Yeah. So your your blindness, were you born blind then or did it sort of come on later? No, I had, you know, it was it was one of these like retinal degenerative diseases. So I was diagnosed with RP when I was like 10, but it really wasn't like the typical RP. So I don't know if you've had people with RP on the show before, but generally mm-hmm. RP starts with the peripheral vision and some night blindness. And a lot of times, I mean, I don't know, I, I make a habit of, of reading lots of like blind memoirs and stuff. And there's a few of the RPers out there who um, kind of don't really notice their visual impairment until a little bit later, you know, because it it, um, it is kind of a little bit more subtle and tends to be more night blindness and they start to run into things and and because and, uh, the peripheral vision is going, but it takes a little bit mm-hmm. longer to get it diagnosed. But I had this other version that's more of a cone rod dystrophy. So I lost like a little bit out of my central vision first. So like I couldn't read the, the blackboard, you know, from the back of the classroom, went to the doctors, they didn't know what it was, tried to fit me for glasses, didn't work, all that stuff. And then, um, and then diagnosed me with RP and, and kind of sent me on my way, you know, but, it, but I basically stopped being able to read by the time I was like 
15, I couldn't really see normal print anymore. So, but I could still get around fine, you know, so it was the old visual impairment for many, many years. Um, no, no cane, no dog, um, just couldn't read <laughs> and couldn't recognize people very well. And, uh, so yeah. after the point of, of having not being able to read around 15, how did you, you were still in, um, in regular school, I imagine. And how did that, um, Oh, that go through the rest of the... you, you know, I, 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 so this was the eighties and it was really hard, you know, I didn't get any, basically any help at all. So, um, like high school was just a complete wash, you know, I mean, yeah, no, no help. And some, I don't know how I figured out, but some, somehow I intuited that I needed to get out of public high school and, um, I actually dropped out of high school and then went to city college of San Francisco. And that was the first time that, you know, they were like, Oh, there's this thing called books on tape, you know, <laughs> like this might be useful for you since you can't read. Um, and actually started getting getting help and stuff. So, um, yeah, there, there. I managed to go through the whole school system without, you know, really getting any kind of accessibility or anything like that. Wow, that's difficult. Yeah, yeah. It was a weird time. You know, it was like they just. I, I don't know. The the public school system just didn't really know. I, I knew quite a few people that have visual impairments that kind of went through the same thing, you know, where it was like, oh, well, you can, you know, sort of read large print, you know, and, mm-hmm. you know, kind of make, make do, you know, there was no, again, I didn't really even know about any accommodations or anything like that it, until City College. And then it was a little while after that until I got like my first computer with, you know, with the enlargement software and stuff like that. Right. So how else were you, how else did you take um, think how else were you handling things at the time like like after you sort of you received that diagnosis um, how did you handle that overall? Uh, you know I don't think I did really. Um, I I should say that I went to a really great thank goodness I went to a really great private school. I was like a scholarship child from first to eighth grade. So I had that foundation of a really good education. And, um, even though high school was a bit of a wash, there was never any question that I would, you know, try and get to college and stuff. But the, the thing about going to a really good private girls school was that I had great friends. So for example, you know, we would go and hang out at the at Baker Beach at night, you know, and, and it, my night vision was a little bit poor, but it was no problem for me to, like, ask for my friends for, you know, we, we walked arm in arm everywhere, basically. So I had that kind of support system. And then other than that, I basically ignored it, you know, pretended like blindness was not part of the future and, you know, was very much emphatically a, a visually impaired person, not, not a blind person, you know, and, and kind of didn't want to have too much to do with, uh, with, I don't know what I perceived as the blind world, which is ironic because now I'm totally immersed in like (laughs) blind culture and history. And, you know, I'm all about like trying to promote other blind writers as, as you know, Carrie, I'm always trying to get you to write something for my magazine, but we can talk about that later. (laughs) (laughs) But, uh, but at the time I was definitely kind of, kind of, a little bit of a rebel. So, you know, I just hung out with my friends and pretended like nothing was happening. Did, did some drinking, you know, did some 
nefarious teenage stuff, and and that was about that was about it. That happens, right, Brian? Yeah, that happens to, <laughs> to anyone, blind or not, right? Exactly. Um, that's exactly. I found too. <laughs> and when and of course when you're you know when you're like 15 or whatever 16 and you have that kind of bent to you you know kind of rebellious or whatever you know blindness was sort of on par with like turning 30 you know it was they were both equally horrifying yeah you, know? you didn't want to think so, you're trying to live right in the moment and not think about exactly any. exactly so how how about your your family life growing up and stuff how when you when you found out about this news was what was the reaction kind of well, you know, it was just me and my mom. Um, so, you know, she she was definitely freaked out. I mean, she she was obviously a little bit more aware of the the possibility of a of a future with with blindness, but at the same time, sort of optimistic. And the fact that the diagnosis, even though they gave a diagnosis, it was all a little bit vague. You know, I think that they said things at the time like, "Well, it could get worse," or you know, "It could stay the same." And my mom kind of added in to to me and to herself, like, "And it could get better." You know, like I don't think they said that, but she was sort of like she took the vagueness and and ran with it. So I think we were maybe both a little bit in in denial in some ways. And she was a working mom and stuff, so um, I don't think there was a lot of time to 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 dwell on it. But of course, she I, I think felt the the emotion of it more than I did because I just wasn't really dealing so much. So. Yeah, that was. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, friends like you, you were, you said there are, are a big thing for any 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 person growing up. Obviously, right, Brian? You know, having a good um, circle of friends who make you feel no different, or yeah, and some of those friends I still have too. So I mean, it was one of those mm-hmm. things where it was like that that you know I didn't have a I didn't have a brother or a sister. I was an only child, so it was really just me and my mom. So those those friends were absolutely vital. I mean. My, my best friend who's still my best friend since the one good thing I got out of high school actually was my, my best friend Indigo and we're still, we're still real close. So she's kind of the closest thing to a sister, I suppose that I had, but, but yeah, I had, I had friends who sort of just took it in stride, you know, the whole, the whole blindness thing. And she was one of the people that I was thinking about when I was talking about sort of walking arm in arm and, and that was just the way that we, yeah, that was just the way that we walked, you know, and we felt, I think, very adult, you know, walking around arm in yeah. arm. And, and uh, uh, so I think maybe being a girl was, was lucky in that way, too. I think it might have been a little harder to get away with that as teenagers if you were, if you were boys, but maybe things are better now. I don't know. So um, let's talk about some of your other interests, um, music specifically. Um, Brian's obviously big into music, and um, we read that uh, article about the brain smashing, pity bashing art of <laughs> blind punks. From I, th- I thought Brian might like that. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so that was a very interesting article. So maybe if you could just talk a little bit about um, your connection with music throughout life and that article in particular. Yeah. Um, uh, well, I would say music in a very uh, sort of general sense. I, there's, there's no way that you would qualify me as being sort of a talented musician by, by any stretch. It was really sort of through my interest in performance art and, and things like that, that I kind of uh, fell into music. I, I did play drums in a, in a band for, well, a couple, couple of bands. Um, but, 
you know, honestly, I was really never that great, but, <laughs> but I had fun. And, um, and yeah. it was actually through that, um, I should, I should say, so I went to New York, um, to go to grad school. And, uh, at some point while I was at grad school, I was like, I don't want to be an academic. Um, but I, but I somehow muddled through and came out with my PhD at the other end, but somewhere in the middle of all that, I decided that, oh, I know I got a dissertation grant. And so I had a lot of time on my hands and for whatever reason, I was like, I'm going to start going to open mics. So I like started wandering around. Oh, and that was also sort of the first time that I had um, some help. I, I went and kind of preempted the whole cane thing. I still was a little bit in denial and didn't want to hold a, a white cane. And uh, so I went and got a guide dog. I was visually impaired, but I had trouble getting around at night. But I don't know. I, I kind of, um, I don't know, jumped the gun a little bit. Um, but it was great. It was, it was, it was an amazing experience. My, my guide dog was named Millennium and, uh, he was nice. very popular. And so he and I ran around the East village of New York city and started going to open mics and, uh, met some really great friends and great people and stuff and just did everything. I mean, storytelling, tried, tried comedy, tried everything. And I met a very dear friend named David Lowe and, he and I started a band and so I was playing drums in the band and then we would go to these open mics and and he was able to do our songs because I would write some of the songs too not so much the music but the lyrics and kind of the mm -hmm. ideas and concepts and stuff so he was on stage and he was able to do his songs sort of by himself and I was very jealous and so I had this idea that I did I, I needed an instrument that I could carry around but there were too many guitarists in the world um is so yeah, there are <laughs> so <lots>. i was like <laughs> so all of a sudden i don't know where it came from or how it came out of my brain but i was like the accordion that would be a perfect oh. thing for, for me to do <laughs> so and so i i went on an accordion adventure and uh, and so that's really where the whole sort of performance art accordion loop pedal brain smashing avant accordion brain smash is actually what the act was called at the time and uh, that's where that that was kind of the long version of how that all came about but really it was about um kind of getting my ideas and my writing out in a way that was fun and performative instead of sitting at my desk which is what you do a lot when you're a you know when you're working on your dissertation for a phd so right yeah sure. so it gives you a bit of a an outlet to to get out of that academic part of things exactly and, just really, and that's that's the thing about uh, punk in general was that it was such an expressive um art where it wasn't necessarily it wasn't about oh i'm this virtuosic musician or like a virtuoso exactly it's more, it's more about um expression so um, there was just quickly mentioning, um, you mentioned someone by the name of Andy Slater. Um, yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to play a little bit of this in the background of the podcast, just cause I thought it sounded interesting. Um, it's called awesome. tap, tap and roll from unseen reheard, which is sounds of a, of a cane. And I just thought that was really interesting. I don't know. You guys should totally talk to Andy. So let, let me know if you, you guys want to do that. Cause he's, he's so great. He's another person that I met, you know, through, through Facebook and um, he's a sound artist and just doing really, really cool stuff. So um, yeah, I'm glad you're going to play some of his, his soundscapes. Yeah. We'll be listening to it yeah. for a minute here in the background once I do some editing. So. 
we're, oh, okay. we're big into the soundscape, so. Nice. Nice. That's right. I was like waiting for it. I forgot it was going to be in the magic of editing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we are now listening to Andy. No. <laughs> but um, yeah, we actually have some cane um, soundscape art. We, when we went to a, the um, National Federation of the Blind Convention in Orlando a couple of years back, just walking into the hotel the first day in the lobby and the, the sound of all those white canes tapping like hundreds on of the canes lobby all at once. on the floor. Oh my god, I bet. Crazy. And I think so. I, I listened to one of your other um, broad, broadcasts or podcasts and um, I heard, Brian, you you always have a, a recorder with you, right? You're sort of always, or both of you are, get, are sort of always ready to, to record. Yeah, I mean, especially especially now with um, I well, when I was when I was a kid, I used to record on cassettes and stuff back in the '90s, all the time. Nice. Um, and then that obviously thirty minutes, sixty minutes, kind of phased out, minutes. and I got a bit older <laughs> and was like, yeah, this isn't cool. I don't, I don't seem cool taping stuff. I, you know, being a teenager and all this, so I kind of stopped. But then having an iPhone now, um, I mean, I don't tape as much as when I was a kid. I generally would ask someone permission if I was going to tape them, but. Um, sounds and stuff like that are really neat, like uh, like the ambience in the hotel. Yeah, yeah. Andy's got these things. Um, well, you can talk to him about it. But from what I understand, he has these. Um, it, his mics are like part of his headset, so he gets like these three hundred and sixty degree kind of recordings and stuff. So it's it's really cool stuff. But um, well, yeah, and now he's. Those. The, like bi- yeah. binaural sound or the sound that makes it sound yeah so that like as you're turning your head around you can kind of record as you're hearing it so it's pretty it's pretty neat stuff and then he's also doing um you know because we're all about accessibility he's also trying to make sure that he kind of writes out verbal descriptions of his soundscapes which is not easy i must say you know it's um well, it's kind of like taking of. a taking a picture or like dress describing it. Like I like to go, I like to go yeah. with um, with other writers and then see how well they can describe their world for me. So like visually, because you see, you know, see, it's not so easy even if you're a writer to always no. describe it in, a, in an accessible way for someone else. Kind of as a writer, you have to you know work on doing that, but. And it takes a lot of language too, right? I mean, just even right. just a simple picture, you know, once you try and put it into into words, it it's a lot. I mean, it's a lot of effort. I understand why people get kind of lazy about, you know, about all descriptions and stuff, but, um, yes, <laughs> but I think it's always worth the effort. You know, it's like the way I think of it is even if you can't do the picture justice, like if you even just give a little teaser, at least the blind person can know whether they're interested in hearing more, you know, from right. a sighted friend or from the person that posted it or whatever. But if there's nothing, it's like, you, you know, you have, you have nothing to go, to go on to know if you want to know more or not. Right. But it's not easy. Uh-huh. <laughs> so when was the first time you then put, picked up a white cane? Mm. Well, is it like a very picking memory up, or is it? yeah, picking up and picking up. I mean, I, I, mm-hmm. oh, I had one, I had some training. And of course, when you go to get a guide dog, you do have to, you have to show that you have some cane skills and stuff. So I did do some mobility yeah. training here and there. Um, but the first time I committed to 
walking around with a white cane was really not that long ago. It was probably about 10 years ago. And I, and I do have my partner to, to credit with this is, um, because we, I think it was one of these times where I didn't bring my dog with, with me, my guide dog. And so I had mm. the cane instead and, and my partner and I were, were holding hands and he was like, this is amazing. Like you need to carry this cane all the time because everybody's getting out of our way, you know, in New York city, <laughs> you are not allowed uh. to leave home without it anymore. <laughs> it was kind of, and, um, and there was something, there was something really wonderful about hearing that because it kind of gave the, the cane power as opposed to being sort of just this stigmatic emblem, you know, of, of sort of helplessness. It, it just turned the whole thing on its head for me. And, and now, um, you know, I, I basically always, well, well also the other side of that is that I, I think I had in my, in the back of my head, I think I talk about this in that piece, maybe it was another piece, but, um, Jim Knipfel, he wrote Slackjaw, and he's written many other books, but he's uh, one of the RP people that I was talking about. He was also kind of a punk rocker back in his in his day and stuff. And in his book Slackjaw, which is really great, he talks about parting, you know, parting the the Red Sea of, of New York City, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and I think I had that in the back of my head when my partner had said this, and I was like, oh, yeah, we should, you know, like, let's name the cane Moses. And so ever since, the cane has been named <laughs> Moses. And, and it's funny, because sighted people seem to really respond to that, you know. Like, there's something about, again, calling this kind of object that can often be very much stigmatized um, to kind of give it this this name of power was really helpful. And so now it's like Moses is in all, you know, pictures of me all the time, you know, (laughs) Moses is there. So I must say that I'm still not very good at it. (laughs) That's, that's one thing I must admit. I'm not the greatest at mobility, but I, I try, I try. (laughs) Yeah, I know. I wonder how many people actually name their white cane because you're right. It's, it can go from a very, um, you know, it has such stigma, the cane, and like you see, you're not the only one. So many people are afraid to pick it up and just yep. are ashamed and want to have it hidden in a drawer, whereas it can be flipped around on its head and become such a symbol of power and independence, and it's great. So. Yeah, yeah, and and it's important to, that we, like, tell each other those narratives, you know? It's like, because it is hard, and it and it, and it mm-hmm. is a very different way of traveling and, and you know, and I don't know. It's, it's like we. I think we have to kind of remind ourselves of, of that, and it doesn't hurt to to say it all the time, you know. <laughs> and I guess that's why the Moses thing was so important. Is that it's kind of this this constant reminder to me as well, you know, that that this is a useful and amazing, yet ter- you know, totally low tech, and yeah. yet so useful <laughs> a piece of equipment in our lives. There's a quote from I think it's from the the uh, punks article um, that refers to refers to the cane um, and, and how you've named it and everything and I thought it might be worthwhile me just reading this a uh, little bit is that oh sure um so yeah you you write that paranoia of the sighted gaze is my most imprisoned disability I feel those sighted eyeballs like the inmate of a panopticon prison <laughs> but I believe there is a way to turn my own discomfort against the pan I'm not saying that word properly panopticon of the sighted gaze. <laughs> or rather, there are ways. Not conforming people, not giving a damn about what the sighted world thinks about my abilities and disabilities. In fact, 
using that ubiquitous judgy gaze to disarm its power, which is why Moses, my cane, figures in so many photos of me these days. Embracing the stigma and using it as a weapon feels punk. Yeah. So, it's, always, it's always fun to hear your hear my writing read by somebody else. It's, it's like, it oh, is, yeah. oh, I wrote that. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Thank you. That was cool. Yeah, that's yeah, a great line. Em- embracing cool. the stigma. Yeah. I have to say that that also came from, um, there's a woman named Heidi Lath. Heidi Lasky, um, Heidi Lasky dance, and she does a lot of stuff in New York and around the world, really, but she's based in New York um, with disabled dancers, and um, I forget how it came about, but she had a campaign uh, like a few years ago that was sort of like um, really trying to embrace disability, um, like sort of this, this, the disabled selfie in a lot of ways. I forget what the, her campaign was called, but somehow I, I said something about, you know, wh- what does it mean to be disabled? And I was like embracing stigma. And I, and I still really uh-huh. like that idea, you know, of like embracing it and, and owning it. And that is very, that is punk, you know, that, that that's, yeah, that's not it, give, right? Not caring what other people think and just exactly. easier said than done in a lot of ways. But I think over time totally. and with confidence in a lot of things you can Oh yeah, I talk a big game for sure. <laughs> like I said, I'm I'm not the greatest at actually mobilitying myself, but I but I I admire people that are. <laughs> yeah, no, and what you say about judgy and you know feeling that gaze on, upon you, I I totally can relate to that too. And even though I've grown up with a cane since I was a young girl, I still have that those issues with the stigma of it, and I still have to battle to feel like it's a powerful tool for me so i you know a lot of what you what you write is very relatable to me anyway and i so i'm glad we could have you on to talk about a lot a lot of this stuff because it's you know it's what what's what's being talked about we are coming up on the halfway point of today's show so we're going to take a little break um we are speaking with leona godin and we will be right back Welcome back to Outlook here on Radio Western. We are speaking with Leona Godin, writer, actor, artist, and educator. Hi. Yeah. <laughs> quite the, uh, quite the resume there. <laughs> so I wanted to get um, right into talking about this. So, um, you, Leona, you founded... Um, so I've been practicing this name because, again, we say voice over our computer screen software reads it funny but you founded aromatica poetica is that how you you're say that? saying it beautifully yeah aromatica poetica is the there's thing. a flow to it if you can get <laughs> get the the first few syllable yeah. part right um so it's a very beautiful title for a thing and um and it, it's it's as a venue for exploring the arts and sciences of smell and taste and yes. it's an online magazine not specifically for, uh, but welcoming to blind readers and writers. Yes. So tell us a bit more about that. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, I really committed to, to writing, I don't know, about five years ago or something, and I, I, with, with some success, and I'm working on a book, as, as you know, Carrie, and maybe we can talk mm-hmm. about that a little bit as well. Yep. Um, like my dissertation was about kind of blindness and technologies of seeing in the 
kind of in the early modern era. And so I've been, I guess what I'm trying to say is that I write a lot about blindness. I've done a lot of research and stuff. And Aromatica Poetica was kind of my way to not talk about blindness, but also create a space that's, um, yeah, as you, as you read, um, welcoming to blind readers and writers. And that is the important thing to me is that I have cited and blind writers and as well as my own writing there, um, talking about these other senses, right? Smell and taste where we can sort of all come together and, and, um, kind of be inspired by, by these other senses. And, um, yeah, I, I, it's still coming into being. I, I, it's funny because we started getting, submissions i guess last year we won a little um like one of those micro grants from um oh my god i can't believe i can't think of what it's called right now um that is really bad uh, anyway the disability micro grant um and so we were able to pay some blind writers and and that somehow got us on the radar to, to receive submissions from all kinds of writers all over the world and stuff. I find that we're getting a lot of poetry, um, which is funny because I'm like least qualified to judge people's poetry, but um, I'm getting lots of poetry, a lot less fiction than I would like. I don't know if people are just shy about submitting short stories. I'm not sure what it is or, or people feel like it needs to be about smell as opposed to what I was really thinking when I when I started this magazine is that you're just thinking about engaging with smell and, and taste, you know, because I think that we've all read a lot of novels that are basically completely descriptive in visual terms, right? That that's yes. basically the mm -hmm. only description you get is 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 uh, you know what color people's eyes are and things like that, which which is fine, but I think it's quite limiting. And um, I think people are starting to recognize, you know, smell in particular has been getting kind of a little bit more on people's radar. I think, and people are working a little bit harder to kind of think about describing smells because. I think people automatically assume that it's easier to describe the visual world. But as we were talking about before, it's it's not easier. It's, not it's just easy, I think yeah. that people can fall back on cliches, right? I think that that's, mm -hmm. that's what makes it easier. I mean, if you really try and describe what you're seeing in a, you know, in an, in an honest way, it's hard, you know, and, 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 and that's true for smell and that's true for music. I mean, it's not easy to describe a piece of music. No, I any, hate describing any, music. <laughs> Yeah, it's tough, right? I mean, yeah. So it was just a, it's, it, again, it's kind of interesting to me to see that people feel comfortable being sort of poetic about taste and smell, um, but are a little bit shy, again, about, about fiction. And we've gotten some really cool personal essays. And um, anyway, so I'm just putting the word out there. Aromatica Poetica would like to see some great short stories that engage with smell and taste. So... <laughs> I'll, I'll definitely keep that in mind the grant you were referring to is that the awesome foundation grant? the awesome foundation i'm so okay. sorry just thought i'd add that we in. got up <laughs> thank you so much we got up really early this morning because we took uh, my partner's sister to the airport at like seven this morning so oh, wow. uh, my brain is not working i'll use that as an excuse anyways so yes the awesome foundation is the disability grant um which they're 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 really great so yeah, another interesting I, thing I read um, when I was doing a bit of research was that um, you you quoted a writer, Rachel Hers. 
Yeah. Um, and she had, she had pointed out that she, this made to read that the American Medal, Medical Association guides to the evaluation of permanent impairment currently gives the loss of smell and taste a value of only one. Um, I'm terrible at reading on the spot. Um, a value of one. <laughs> You're doing a great job. One, one to five percent. Yeah, exactly. Of, of the, like quality of life, right? Right, yeah. of the total value of a person's life worth, life's worth. So, um, and then they give vision at eighty five percent. Yeah, value of a person's Oof. life. So, yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because I think that's so interesting because it's like it. That's kind of it, it's unfortunate for both people who are blind and people who are as not anosmic right i mean because it turns out that actually it can be quite debilitating to lose your sense of smell and but it's not immediately apparent like it's emotionally it, it's kind of cumulative after several months or whatever mm-hmm. but again to make those kinds of valuations is obviously a problem for we who are blind if like 85 percent of sort of yeah your, yeah, your they're both, value they're both very ex- extreme on different ends of the spectrum but both exactly and it's kind of insulting for 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 everybody <laughs> for everybody involved so i'm glad you pointed that out and 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 she's one of the people that's really doing very cool research um into like perception and and smell uh, perceptual research. Interesting, too, there's an interview on Aromatica Poetica with Lawrence Rosenblum, who wrote a really cool book called See What I'm Saying. Um, and he he's all about sort of, he's also a perceptual psychologist, and he's all about cross-modal plasticity and the idea that we're actually taking in information through multiple senses all the time, even if we're not aware of it. Mm-hmm. But one thing that he said to me that was really interesting, and again, this is how, like, our sight, sight our sight sort of site-centric bias kind of influences even science is that he was saying that, you know, as a perceptual psychologist who does a lot of stuff with, um, with sight and hearing, um, he was saying that as a professor, they used to basically throw the the smell research, like when they were writing the textbooks, they would throw it to their grad students because basically smell doesn't matter, right? It's all about sight, a little bit about mm-hmm. hearing, and then the rest of the senses. <laughs> and so even in science, right, there's these these biases that right. like sight is so important. And so that's what all the research goes into. And then w- then we know more about it, then we care more about it. And it's this cycle, right, of saying sight's so important, sight is so important, because nobody's bothering to look at other senses. So so Rachel Hers is one of these people that is kind of doing this new research on on smell, and and so people are becoming more interested, you know. And so then there's a, a new cycle of saying, oh well, maybe smell is more important. Maybe it's more interesting than we thought it was. Maybe it's not just for dogs, you know. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, so not so just it, for dogs. That's it's not just for dogs anymore. That's right. <laughs> it kind of reminds me about how so much was put into um, studying men medically so that mm-hmm. there wasn't really a model for women's issues. It was totally exactly. separate, separate things and nobody was paying enough attention. So it wasn't getting the attention it deserved for a long time. And, yeah, That's a great analogy. That's absolutely right. If, if you have a standard and you've decided what the standard is, then all you're going to know about is that standard, that quote unquote norm or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Yeah. So, and also on, on, um, on your site there what so you do a lot of interviews like you said which is good yeah i'd love to do more yeah 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 no that's always great um 
but there was also recently an essay. So, you know, it's part, like you said, partially this, this is welcoming for blind um, writers and readers, but it has a sighted audience. Recently, there was a, um, some poems on there, pawn poems. Right. Yeah. That was kind of neat from David L. Sten, Stenizzi. Yeah. Um, so there was the visual element. I, I, th- I think from what I gathered there, he took photos of ponds near, near where he lived. And then he would every day he would go, he would write um, a little bit of poetry, a little or a line or two about what he was seeing with P, with O, with N, with D every day. So. Exactly. He wrote acrostic poems. And I, I loved right. this project because, I mean, I don't know. I, I, I'm so all over the place all the time that I yeah. really appreciate people that, like, decided they're going to do something. And he did it for every day yeah. for 365 days. I mean. That's a lot of he, commitment. We, yeah. It's so great. And so we wrote these little acrostic poems. And the other thing that he he um, kind of enforced for himself was he was never allowed to use the same P, O, N, or D words. So every right. single pond acrostic poem started with different words. So, and then he took a picture if, if the time was right. Like, so yeah, it was, okay. I would love it to be more, um, uh, yeah, I, I would, I, I would love there to be more multimedia stuff. In fact, I'm trying to get mm-hmm. my friend Andy Slater to, to do some smell inspired soundscapes. So mm-hmm. uh, I invite you guys to do that as well. <laughs> you know what, what I thought of the, when I was reading about things, it made me think, I don't know if you had ever saw them growing up, but we always growing up had um, a mother who would get a lot of um, crafts and different things for us, different for our senses. And she, she used to get, find these scratch and sniff stickers. Did you ever? Oh, sure. Yeah. And that's kind of what I feel the writing is for Aromedica Poetica. (laughs) (laughs) If you say it slow, it's easier. (laughs) Yeah. Sometimes when I get too spastic, I can't even say it. You know, so I'm like, Aromedica Poetica. (laughs) Yeah, how did you how did you come <laughs> up with uh, give it the with time that, it deserves with such a, a beautiful name like that? Um, it was the aroma part, and then also there's that um, uh, Ars Poetica by by Horace, um, where he's he's writing about about poetry back in 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 Latin. So I kind of stole it from that a little bit. Um, yeah. Uh, the, yeah, it was kind of a combination. To be honest, I had another title in mind for, for a while, and then it turned out that, like, a video game had it. It was called Distill My Heart, because um, <laughs> I was kind of first interested in, like, distillation and connections between, um, well, that, that, that idea of, of distilling, right, of, of, of either fragrances or booze or poetry, yeah. or fragrances. I thought it was really cool, but uh, un- unfortunately... Uh, yeah, there was some video game that had a everything's taken. A distill my heart. <laughs> yeah, well, so much is taken, but darn it. <laughs> but I like Aromatica Poetica because it feels a little bit more. It feels bigger. It it feels like yeah. the, the potential of the directions that it can go in is is bigger than that. So um, sure, and I like that too. Because as a writer, there's this issue when you're blind that's a big, big th- issue in my life and has been about how much to write especially if you're writing memoir and nonfiction, how to write about your blindness in a certain way, but not, you know, you always sometimes don't want to talk about it and write about it. And other times you do and how much to put into a piece you write fiction even, or. um, Yeah. Yeah. So it is, it's so, it's so hard. And I, I think we're, we're all 
negotiating that. And I, one thing that's helped me is a, a friend of mine, um, uh, Andrew Leland, who's also writing a book, and he's a podcaster as well. He he does The Organist. I don't know if you guys have run into that. But um, anyway, I think it was him or he said some other blind person. Anyways, it's been getting passed around. But I like this idea that, you know, blindness is not a subject. It's it's a perspective, right? So mm-hmm. in that way, it allows there to be lots of different kinds of blind stories, right? It's not just like, because I think there's a problem in the publishing world where you can only have like one blind memoir going every five mm-hmm. years or so, you know, um, you know, which is as crazy as that would be like saying, oh yeah, you can only have like one black you know, one African-American memoir going at a time, you know, I mean, it's like, yeah. I mean, there's as much variety amongst blind, blind people as there are among sighted people. So it's, it's, it's one of those things where I think that we, we need to kind of uh, push the, you know, the, the variety of our experiences as blind people as visually impaired people, you know, and, and realize that we're like not in a competition to be the blind spokesperson for the, for the decade or whatever it is, you know? Yeah. (laughs) Right. But it's tough to know how much to, to write about. I think you're right because, you know, my friend Jim Knipfel, you know, he, he kind of has written many books, like 10 books, and two of them were about his blindness, but he's still kind of labeled a blind writer, right? Even though mm-hmm. he has like a huge variety of interests and stuff. And it's it's tough, you know, because you want to be able to talk about yourself. I mean, it again, it's kind of like, you know, it's like being a, a woman, like in some in some ways, the what you're writing about is going to be influenced by your womanhood. And sometimes it's not, you know, and I I think it's the same thing for blindness. It's like, um, yeah, negotiating that, that space of of where it's influencing your perceptions of the world and when it's not, you know, and being honest about it, I guess is, is, is not easy. Definitely not. Sorry. Sorry for that long winded (laughs) response, but no, like I said, it's a big subject. It's a big discussion that I I know I have. Yeah. You think about because yes, you don't want to just be known by one, one thing like that, but it's also, it does, it does um, pique people's interests and it's important as well. So it's, it's the balance of, of both. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So you're currently working on a book called Seeing and Not Seeing, A Personal and Cultural History of Blindness. So perhaps you want to talk a little bit about that project? Well, I will say that one interesting thing about being a writer uh, is that um, titles are up for grabs. And the bigger the project, the less control you have over titles. So I did sell the project with that name. um, And I turned in the the first full manuscript um, couple few months back i'm now working on like the big massive edit um hopefully it's coming out next next summer is kind of when we're we're slated right now um so the first part of the title is they sort of already gave me the word of like it's not selling enough this is like wonderful publishing Mm. (laughs) lingo for change your title (laughs) they like the second half so the personal and cultural history of blindness i think that's gonna stick but uh now we're, okay. we're working on a new a new title but um 
Yeah, I mean, it, it kind of is bringing together a lot of the stuff that I've been doing um, as as an academic. Like I said, I, I was interested in blindness kind of in the 17th century um, and, and 18th century uh, kind of relationships between technologies of seeing. So interested in blindness in uh, like early modern philosophy, juxtaposed with the invention of the telescope and the microscope, um, yeah. all these kinds of really wonky academic stuff. But some of that is coming into into this book that's very much for sort of a general population and and just kind of examining that whole ocular centric tendency that we were talking about a few minutes ago and 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 kind of seeing how like a lot of the the binaries the dichotomies that we think about in terms of like you know blindness versus sight seems like it's this ultimate uh, you know dichotomy whereas no it's like layers of seeing so many of us are visually impaired and also you know how blindness fits into kind of a larger cultural context is is what I'm interested in writing about and it and it's very much you know m my version of this I mean I think there could be a lot of these kinds of cultural histories um, I, I just happen to you know kind of be very firmly educated like in the western tradition so I start out with Homer there's you know some John Milton in there um, mm. and there's a you know kind of moving moving to present day but but I definitely spend some time like in 17th and 18th century, but it, hopefully it will be accessible and, and interesting to a, a general audience and will kind of help to dismantle these, these, you know, yeah, these oppositions between what it is to be a sighted person and what it is to be a blind, a blind person. And yeah, and we need to know more know. of our history. So. Yeah, yeah, I, I hope so. And then, of course, bringing in some of the the blind, yeah, the blind characters, the blind figures of of our of our of our history, and and seeing how intimately connected, uh, you know, blindness is with just a general intellectual history. Um, it, th mm -hmm. Things like how the invention of Braille kind of came directly out of the Enlightenment philosophy of the 18th century and how those two things were, were so intimately connected and, and kind of were in dialogue with each other and not, <clears throat> excuse me, not, you know, oppositional forces. Yeah. So, um, mm -hmm. uh, well, I'm really I don't, looking forward to it. Yeah, it sounds, it sounds <laughs> I don't know if I'm like, I don't know if I'm selling enough, so I'm going to have to work it's, on my, my spiel. Well, like we were talking earlier, it's, <laughs> I find in general, it's hard to talk about any form of art or including writing, like it can be difficult um, <sighs> to really sell something sometimes. And, <laughs> it, yeah. is, it is, so I appreciate my, I appreciate you giving me the space to ramble a bit. The selling is what was something we sort of struggle with too. Yeah, it's a, it's not easy, especially when it's your own thing, you're... It's hot. yeah. You know, some people are better at it than others, obviously. But yeah, that's why you hire marketers, right? Or marketing people. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, well, yeah. So I, you know, Aromatica Poetica is a beautiful publication. People should really check it out. Uh, oh, I'm glad thanks. I found you. Oh, me too. I, I still am. I know. I. I never stop, right? I'm always like, Carrie, are you gonna are you gonna submit to me? Am I gonna see some writing for you? Because interestingly, we didn't meet through a blind group. I mean, I think I we kind of met through the binders, right? Through a writing 
a general or writing I, group. I found you on Catapult, maybe? Oh! Ca Catapult? Do you okay. still have a column there, or is that ended? Uh, you know what? It's kind of on hold a little bit, um, mm -hmm. mostly because of the book, because there was getting to be a little bit of complications of like how much to write because there is some crossover there yeah um, yeah i if think i'll say, probably say for your book and yeah exactly and and um i think that's actually going to be less of it of an issue than i thought it was going to be but also now i'm just kind of really bogged down in in the whole editing process and stuff mm. um so i think it's more like it's on it's on hold i i um they've been really nice to me i mean yeah, that 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 was amazing. That's actually how everything started with this book. Is I wrote my first um, essay for them, and mm -hmm. uh, I, I don't know how much how much we want to get into this and, and how much time we have. But I mean, mm -hmm. this is just a really quick rundown of how sort of networking can come in very strange ways. Like I I signed yeah. up for a, a, an online writing class with Catapult. Um, they also offer classes. They're kind of one of these really neat publishing. Um, mm -hmm. little conglomerates where they do they publish books, they have the online magazine, and then they also offer classes both online and in New York City. Mm -hmm. So I took a class with them, and that's how I got connected with them, and then, you know, put uh, pitched for the column and then wrote mm -hmm. the first column. And one of the women that I had made friends with in the class reached out to me after that first column. It was called Cancer Versus Blindness. And, um, and she reached out, and she was like, this is really great, um, do you have an agent? And I was like, no, I do not mm -hmm. have an agent. And she said, well, my boyfriend happens to be an agent and let me connect you. And, and so that's really how the whole book thing started um, was, was wow. through Catapult. So wow. I will always be grateful. They, they did exactly what their name says yeah, <laughs> yes. they will do. So, <laughs> um, All right. Well, we're down to the last couple minutes or so of the show. Um, okay, okay. Thanks again, Leona Godin, Godin for... <laughs> For coming on the show today. You're so all welcome. This has been Colorado. so fun. Yeah, all the way from Colorado. Yeah. <laughs> coming all the way to London. Hello, Canada. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, Ontario. Yeah. So, you know, there's a lot going on right now in the world, obviously. So hopefully you're doing all right where you are. Yeah. Um, and you guys too, I hope. Yeah. How, yeah. Overall, quickly, how, how have you been dealing with the things these days? Are you been been all right just hanging in there or yeah you know what i mean again we're in a very uh, small community here and also as a writer you know i don't get out a lot in the best of times yeah, so yeah. <laughs> it doesn't change my life too too much we were supposed to go to new york um to visit some friends and stuff but i think hopefully we're going to go in in august and um and catch up so they're just starting to open up in in new york and 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 hopefully We'll yeah. be able to do we'll that. See. Yeah. Well, hopefully, we'll, it'll be all right. Well, well, yeah, you got a lot, a lot of great stuff going on here, and I really, you know, I love your writing, and then I also love everything you're doing. Just like you said, as an edu as it says here, as an educator, and um, thank you very much for giving us your time today. And uh, yeah, you bet. It was so much fun. Well, we wish you and Moses. Um, the best with everything and hopefully talk to you again sometime yeah, have you on again someday. it's great, great a lot, lot oh. to talk about yeah when the book comes out when the book comes out yeah exactly. absolutely uh, this has been such a pleasure thanks so much to both of you great thank you Liam okay thanks
find us on Twitter at OutlookCFB and on Facebook, facebook.com slash Outlook on Radio Western.